Uh, we'll now have the Bible reading from Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 to 50. And that can be found on page 792 of the Church Bibles. Uh, Matthew chapter 12, starting at verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they, said to, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from the place. A large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. He warned them, Do not tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Uh, Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom uh, divided against itself will be ruined. Every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by who do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. 
Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that any, everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it does go through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than that the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside, wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are still standing outside, wanting to speak to you. He replied to them, who is my brother and who are my, who are my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here is my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Thanks to Nicole. Hi everyone, my name is Brian. I'm a part of the ministry team here and it's my great delight to be opening up Matthew 12 with us this evening. Uh, do keep your Bibles open there. Um, and it's so great to be with you. Uh, I don't know, some of you might have missed it, but last week we were meant to be looking at this passage and instead I was at home isolating with COVID. So you guys did Matthew 13 last week, but this week we're jumping into Matthew 12. It's a great passage. There's so much in there. So let's pray and ask God for his help. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we spend these next few moments reading and thinking about your word. We pray that you would set our hearts and our minds on your kingdom. Help us to be a people that long for your kingdom and a people who go out from here living for your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, at the heart of the Christian faith lies a very challenging claim. Uh, it's not a claim about science and the origins of the universe. It's not a claim about human suffering or sexuality. It's not a claim about the historical reliability of the Gospels. 
No, what lies at the heart of the Christian faith are three simple words. Jesus is Lord. That's the claim that we've been grappling with in our sermon series, The Messiah. We've seen time and time again the incredible authority and lordship of Jesus. We've seen sign after sign, miracle after miracle, which have all demonstrated to us that Jesus is the Messiah, the Lord. And that's a challenging claim. It's a challenging claim because we have this gut reaction within us which tells us that every authority figure needs to be challenged. That absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that the path to true joy and happiness is found by not letting anyone else tell you how to live your life. That's, that's the air we breathe. That's what we're told every day. Uh, some people tie it down to the influence of what's called the Enlightenment. Uh, Some people call it tall poppy syndrome. Uh, Some people think it's the influence of 90s punk rock, which you can see had a huge impact on me. Uh, Maybe it's the influence of TV or movies. Whatever it is, we now find this claim, Jesus is Lord, to be extremely challenging to stomach. But this is not just a modern problem. In fact, some of the people in Jesus' day had incredible difficulty stomaching the idea that Jesus could be the Messiah, the Lord of all. Uh, We saw in earlier chapters when Jesus uh, healed a paralyzed man and forgave his sin, the Pharisees went up in arms. They said, he's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Or a little later in that chapter, we hear the first occurrence of the Pharisees saying that Jesus is driving out demons by the Prince of Demons. But up until now, the jabs at Jesus' authority and lordship have been pretty brief and passing. But now we come to Matthew 12, and what we encounter is what is pretty much an entire chapter dedicated to people rejecting the lordship of Jesus. Now, there is some goodness behind this gut reaction that we have to someone claiming power and authority. Uh, You probably know stories of people in positions of power and authority who have used that for self-interest. There are stories of corrupt politicians, domestic violence perpetrators, and workplace bullies that make us reluctant to submit to the authority of another. But the incredible thing that we'll see tonight is that Jesus doesn't use his power in that way. Jesus is Lord is not a phrase that we should fear. It's a phrase that should bring us great joy because it means that he is king. And it means that he is bringing in God's kingdom. God's kingdom is a place of rest for the weary, justice for the abused, and life for the dying. And so as we look through Matthew 12 together tonight, we're going to see that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, he's Lord of justice, Lord of the kingdom, and Lord of life. This is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus is Lord over all, and that his kingdom is good news for all people. And so as we hear God's word today, let's be a people who do not reject the authority of Jesus. Let us be a people who do the Father's will and proclaim that Jesus is Lord. 
Uh, Come with me to verse 1, where we see our first claim about Jesus' lordship. We see that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, this word Sabbath comes from a Hebrew word, which means to stop or to rest. And throughout history, people have often had two very different ways of thinking about the Sabbath. Uh, Some people think that keeping the Sabbath is so important, so crucial to their salvation, that they fear hell and condemnation for anyone who works on the Sabbath. Uh, Other people are so convinced that the Sabbath is just some Old Testament Jewish law, and they think that it has nothing to do with the Christian life. But the Sabbath is neither of those things. It's not irrelevant Old Testament law, nor is it the law that we must obey in order to be saved. Uh, In fact, if you know your Bibles, you would know that the Sabbath didn't start in Old Testament law. Where's the first account of the Sabbath? It's at creation. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 2 and 3 tells us that God created the world in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. He Sabbathed from his work of creating. See, the Sabbath didn't start when God gave Israel the Ten Commandments. It started when God created the world. Uh, A few weeks ago, just before I caught COVID, I was taking a trek through Ikea, and I went to Ikea to buy a lamp. And as I opened up the box and I started putting it together, I made sure that I grabbed the instruction manual. Now, I'm a pretty classic bloke, which means that whenever I get something, I tend not to look at the instruction manual, but Ikea is different, right? Uh, The instruction manual helps me to know how to operate this thing that I am building so that it can work properly. And in the same way, the God who made us put us together as finite creatures who need rest. And so, He put rest into his very creation of the world and he wrote it down on his instruction manual so that we can know how to live well in the world. I mean, anyone who tries to go on in life without resting knows that that's not the way that we were made. The Sabbath is important because it ties back to how God has made us. But the Sabbath is also important because of what God has made us for. See, God has not made us to work, 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 get enough money, hopefully have enough to live off, retire and then die. That is not the purpose for which God has made you. No, God's plan for his creation is to bring us to true and lasting rest. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 9 says this, it says, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Did you know that? There is still a Sabbath day to come. And then it says, well, therefore, let us make every effort to enter that rest. How do we do that? Well, we do that by hearing and obeying Jesus' words. But that's not what the Pharisees did, is it? I mean, have a look in in Matthew 12, verse 2. We see that the Pharisees come up to Jesus and they say, look, why are your disciples doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Notice how Jesus responds to their complaint. He doesn't say, oh, the Sabbath, oh, that's Old Testament command, that's no longer relevant. Why bother with the Sabbath? No, he says, well, actually, you've misinterpreted the Sabbath. 
See, they failed to see how the Sabbath points back to the creation of the world and God's plan for rest. And they failed to see how the Sabbath points forward to God's plan for a new creation. They'd failed to see the unity of all that God had promised in Scripture. And so Jesus educates them. He takes them back to the Old Testament. In verse 3 and 4 of our passage, he says, Remember what King David and his companions did when they were hungry. They went into the temple and ate the consecrated bread, which is reserved for the priests. And haven't you read that the priests serving on the Sabbath, they desecrate the temple and yet they are innocent. See, just like an ambulance has the authority to go above the speed limit in an emergency and that is not breaking the law, so did King David have the authority to go and eat the consecrated bread in the temple. So did the priests have the authority to work on the Sabbath and still they are innocent. But then notice what Jesus says in verse 6. This is the point. He says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Something even greater than King David. Something greater than the priests who work in the temple. Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, had come. See, the most important thing here is not the Sabbath, but what the Sabbath points us to. It points us to Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the one who brings in God's everlasting rest. And so we must ask ourselves, will we accept the authority of the one who promises this rest? The Pharisees don't do that, do they? In fact, they continue their assault on Jesus. See in verse 9 that Jesus then goes into a synagogue and there's a man there with, with a shriveled hand. And so the Pharisees then ask Jesus, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? It's not a genuine question. In fact, it's a trap. The Pharisees want to trap Jesus in his words. You can almost see the smug look on the Pharisees' faces. They say, if Jesus says it's lawful and then he heals him, we can bring charges against him for breaking the Sabbath. But their smug looks are soon turned to shame when Jesus responds, If you had a sheep and it fell into a pit on the Sabbath, you would do everything that you could to rescue that sheep. And how much more important are people than sheep? See what the Pharisees had done? They'd so distorted God's word, they'd become so twisted in their thinking that they'd ended up denying what they read every single time they opened up Genesis 1, that in the beginning, God made mankind in his image. They thought they were obeying God's law, but they were rejecting the very fact that God made us with value and dignity and worth. They'd so tied themselves into knots that they then called evil good and good evil. That's what happens when someone rejects Jesus as Lord. That's what happens when someone twists and distorts God's word. We call good evil and evil good. But true Christianity acknowledges that Jesus is Lord of all, that he is Lord of the Sabbath. 
true Christianity acknowledges that God made us as highly valuable but finite creatures. And it longs for the true and lasting rest that Jesus brings. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. And second, he is Lord of justice. See, as we go on from here, we read that Jesus then withdraws from that place because he's now aware that the Pharisees are plotting to kill him. Okay, this is a significant development in the opposition that Jesus faced. And so what does Jesus do? Well, he continues to heal the sick, but he does so in secrecy, warning them not to tell others about him. And we're told in verse 17 that this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah's prophecy is this, that Jesus is God's chosen servant, the one in whom God delights. And God has put his spirit on Jesus so that he would proclaim justice to the nations. Jesus has his, uh, the Spirit of God upon him so that he would proclaim justice to the nations. In other words, he will bring about true and lasting justice. But he's not going to do it in the way that you expect. Uh, we read that he's not going to quarrel or cry out. In other words, he's not going to bring about justice by shouting over the top of people. Nor will he break a bruised reed or blow out a smoldering wick. In other words, even the weakest and most vulnerable things will not be trampled by the Lord of justice. You know, many of the people of Jesus' day rejected him because they expected a Messiah who would come and bring justice through might and military power. They expected a strong military leader who would overthrow the Romans. And what they got was Jesus, gentle and kind. But don't mistake Jesus' gentleness for an inability to bring about true and lasting justice. Jesus is so powerful that he's able to bring about justice without trampling over the weak. Every other kingdom needs to use might and force to fight for justice for its people. But Jesus, the Lord of justice, he has the power, he has the knowledge, he has the might to judge rightly and fairly. So know that every sin and every injustice which people think that they've gotten away with all will be revealed when the Lord of justice returns. Every abuse of power, every misuse of wealth, every act of favoritism and partiality will come before Jesus, the Lord of justice, and he will make all things right. Jesus will bring justice so that in his name, all the nations will put their hope they will not be put to shame. Jesus is the Lord of justice. So to say Jesus is Lord is to trust that he will bring about true and perfect justice for all. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, Lord of justice. And third, he is Lord of the kingdom. Uh, as we go on from here, we hear of Jesus healing a man who is demon possessed. And that has caused him to be both blind and mute. And we hear that there are then two different types of reactions to this miracle. 
have a look in verse 23. We hear that the people were astonished and they questioned, could this be the son of David? They were open-minded, but still a bit puzzled. I mean, there were some things about Jesus that they liked. Here's this guy going around healing people. But there were also some things that they didn't quite like. Like, if Jesus is the Messiah, then why isn't he overthrowing the Romans? And so they continued to sit on the fence. The other response we see in verse 24 is that of the Pharisees. And it's a response of complete and outright rejection. They hear about what Jesus has done and they say, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Which is an absolutely ridiculous thing to say when you think about it, isn't it? I mean, after all, if Satan is driving out Satan, then his kingdom doesn't stand a chance. It's a bit like saying that Satan is scoring own goal after own goal. Okay, his team is not going to win if that keeps on happening. It doesn't make any sense. Now, what does make sense is what Jesus says in verse 28. If Jesus is driving out demons by the Spirit of God, then this is proof that the kingdom of God has come upon them at last. Jesus is Lord of the kingdom. And as we can see here, his kingdom is the only one which will stand in the end. See, all that Jesus is doing by healing people and driving out demons is proof that God is binding up Satan so that he can plunder his house. All of this is proof that Jesus, uh, what Jesus is doing is proof that God is taking people from the dominion of darkness and bringing them into the kingdom of light. And the Pharisees knew this and they still chose to reject the Lord of the kingdom by saying it's by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. So then Jesus gives this very stern warning in verse 31. Have a look at verse 31. Jesus says, Every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, this is a very serious warning, isn't it? Anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. What could that possibly mean? First of all, let me tell you what it does not mean. This unforgivable sin is not rejecting Jesus and the truth of the gospel for a time. Remember, the incredible news of God's kingdom is that every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. Uh, take the example of the Apostle Paul, who, when he was reflecting on his conversion, would say, even though I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Even Paul, who went around openly persecuting Christians, could say, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. 
See, anyone who turns from their sin and trusts in Jesus will be forgiven. That is not what the unforgivable sin is. No, the unforgivable sin is anyone who continuously, thoughtfully, willfully and consciously rejects the kingdom of God. We read there that Paul acted in ignorance and unbelief. But we hear this message in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. Hebrews tells us that it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. That's a heavy warning. And it's the same warning that Jesus gives to the Pharisees. Those who had tasted God's word, who had seen the coming kingdom through the mighty acts that Jesus was doing, those who knew the scriptures deeply and who understood that all that Jesus was doing was proof that he was the Messiah. Theirs was not ignorance and unbelief. This was continual, thoughtful, willful, conscious rejection of the king and his kingdom. It's a strong and serious warning. And so if you're here tonight and you realize that you've been saying that you're a Christian, but your life doesn't match that claim, perhaps there's ongoing, habitual, unrepentant sin. Maybe there's a big difference between who you are Monday through Saturday and who you are when you come here on a Sunday night. Hear this warning. It is impossible for those who have been enlightened but then fallen away to be brought back to repentance. Friends, if you are drifting or backsliding in your faith, don't continue on that path. Don't continue living in unrepentant sin. Don't reject the Lord of the kingdom. Maybe you're here tonight and you've wandered even further than that. Uh, Maybe you were at one point following Jesus and then sin started to creep in. You decided, you know what, I'm going to keep it a secret and live as if it doesn't matter. There then came that time when you decided to openly walk away from your faith. Maybe you haven't been in church in many months or many years. Maybe you're listening to us online. Lovingly, I want you to hear this warning. Don't reject the king and his kingdom. The Bible tells us that every sin and slander can be forgiven. So come back to him. The Bible tells us that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And so if you come to him, you will find forgiveness. But if you continue to willfully, thoughtfully and consciously reject the kingdom... Jesus says, by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Don't reject the Lord of God's everlasting kingdom. We've had Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, Lord of justice, Lord of the kingdom. Finally now, he is the Lord of life. 
because our passage continues and in verse 38 we hear that the pharisees and the teachers of the law now come to jesus and they say to him teacher we want to see a sign from you which is a bit ironic right i mean they've just seen sign after sign from jesus i mean maybe in their minds those didn't count maybe they wanted a sign from jesus on their own terms but see how Jesus responds to them. He says, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. What is this sign of Jonah? Well, just as Jonah was in the belly of a huge fish for three days, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. See, just as Jonah was delivered from death through that great fish. So too, Jesus was delivered from death. And this is a final sign to all people that he is Lord of all. In fact, after this, you probably know that the opposition and the rejection that was coming at Jesus' lordship would intensify. Jesus would be handed over to the, to the uh, Gentiles. He would be crucified and he would be buried in a tomb and three days later rise again. This is the final sign that God has given us that Jesus is Lord because he has now raised him from the dead and appointed him Lord over all things. 1, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, that as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come when, the ha when he hands over the kingdom of God the Father after he's destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. See friends, Jesus is the Lord of life because through his resurrection, he has declared victory over death. All who acknowledge that Jesus is Lord will enjoy his kingdom forevermore. A kingdom in which there is no more death or mourning or crying or pain. This is the kingdom of which Jesus is Lord. But Jesus finishes by giving us one more warning. Having heard that Jesus has risen from the grave, will we be a people who repent and confess that Jesus is Lord? See, the people of Nineveh repented when they saw Jonah delivered from death. But if we don't repent, then they will stand us up and hold us accountable on the last day. Jesus is the Lord of life. His resurrection means that he has conquered death. So let us stand and declare, Jesus is Lord. Tonight we have heard the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, Lord of justice, Lord of the kingdom, and Lord of life. It's good news but it's also challenging news because we must not be like the Pharisees of Jesus' day who rejected the Messiah. We must be a people who do the Father's will, a people who listen to Jesus' words and who bear lives of fruitful repentance. We must be a people who do the Father's will by acknowledging that Jesus is our Messiah. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great word and for this picture of the kingdom of God. We thank you that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, Lord of justice, Lord of the kingdom, and Lord of life. Help us, Father, this week to long for your kingdom and to live for your kingdom in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.